This lecture will cover what exercise actually does at a biochemical or molecular level to change the pathophysiology of chronic disease. So now that we've talked about cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, and endocrine disease, specifically metabolic syndrome and diabetes, I want to go through the specifics of what exercise is doing to change that pathophysiology. Now, um, just to give you some background on where this information is coming from, because there's obviously not a specific chapter on this in your textbook. So the optional textbook that I recommended in the syllabus is the Exercise Professional's Guide to Optimizing Health, um, a textbook that's um, sort of promoted jointly by um, the Lippincott Williams and Wilkins publisher and ACSM. So some of this information is coming from that optional textbook, which is a really good read actually for those of you going into this area, um, in case you might want that as a future reference. Um, but then there's also a whole host of articles where I got a lot of information about some of these substances that I'm going to be going over in this class. So these are just for your reference. Um, in order to sort of frame the different parts of this lecture, I wanted to outline the specific aspects that have come up multiple times in the various lectures for cardiovascular, respiratory, and endocrine. Many of the chronic diseases that we've already talked about, including some that we have yet to talk about, um, for example, some of the autoimmune diseases, um, some chronic neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, tend to have some common pathophysiologies. Um, we're finding more and more that inflammation is a really huge part of many different disease processes. We know inflammation is a normal positive adaptation to you know, injury, to infection, but what we're finding out is that very small changes and low-level persistent systemic inflammation may actually be what underlies many different chronic diseases. So this low-grade systemic information, that inflammation that is sometimes really only detectable with some very special test um, results is something that we're going to be talking about more and more. One of the biggest things that leads to the cardiovascular disease um, that precedes coronary artery disease, that precedes um, peripheral vascular disease, that precedes stroke, is this vascular endothelial dysfunction. And I'm going to go through that a little bit more in a second, but in a way we have already talked about this when we talked about atherosclerosis because that is a big part of this process. Now something else that will also come up as we go through this lecture is this idea that you have changes in some very important hormones that affect insulin and lipids. And these hormones that are released many times lead to a resistance in your cells to insulin and there is a pretty close relationship between insulin and the various lipids in your body um, that are triggered by some of these changes in your glucose metabolism. So I'll go through more of that as we go forward as well. But this is kind of what's going to frame the various slides going forward. So let's start with the first one this low-level systemic inflammation. And this idea here is that it's this long-term, really low level, not something that is even clinical, you can't detect it. But we can find positive test results in something called HSCRP. This should sound a little bit familiar because we did talk about CRP. That is C-reactive protein. And that is an inflammatory marker So it goes up in your, blood in your bloodstream when you're having some inflammation. And this HS stands for high sensitivity. So this is the test that's actually done. 
high sensitivity CRP will be elevated. So the reason it's high sensitivity is you have to really be able to test and detect very small increases. So not so much that you would see the increase that you would in an infection or an autoimmune disease where you have a lot of inflammation. This is really low level elevations in the inflammation in your body. So that test that you might um, do is called a high sensitivity CRP, HSCRP. And what we've found in research is that low levels of this HSCRP have been found increased in atherosclerosis, which ends up leading to coronary artery disease, stroke is associated with hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and um, uh, metabolic syndrome, which ends up being a precursor many times to hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. What we also know from research is that exercise has anti-inflammatory effects. Now, specifically moderate persistent exercise because you do get some inflammatory um, conditions, although brief, from high intensity, really vigorous exercise. But you don't tend to have that pro-inflammatory effect from vigorous exercise to persist for very long. So particularly in somebody who has chronic disease already, this moderation is key, and we'll come back to that at the end of the lecture. But what exercise do is it changes the response of some of those inflammatory mediators and hormones and enzymes that we're going to talk about. So here's some of those. These are some of the substances that are involved in the pathophysiology of inflammation. And another term for this is called cytokines. Cytokines are these chemical messengers that your body releases as part of the inflammatory process. And we briefly talked about some of these way back in the inflammation lecture, but I didn't go into too much detail about them at the time. But I do want to talk about a couple of them here so that you can understand how exercise changes them. So one of these is called tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF-alpha for short. This is a cytokine that initiates acute inflammation using the immune system. And what we know about that is it promotes vascular adhesion molecules, which means that it's going to promote inflammation in the blood vessels by promoting things to stick to the lining of the blood vessel. So this should make sense as to why it's connected with atherosclerosis. It also is associated with dysfunction of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So this is why it seems to have a connection to hypertension. And we know that both of these things then, an increase in coagulability or adhesion in the blood vessels and hypertension really end up increasing your risk for atherosclerosis. Now, remember I said that exercise tends to um, cause anti-inflammatory response. Here's one case where we have to be a little bit careful because TNF-alpha seems to be increased, particularly in high-intensity exercise. So TNF-alpha in general increases inflammation. So ideally, we want to decrease TNF-alpha. Now, what we do know is that there is another substance that tends to have an anti-TNF effect, and that's IL-6. Now, interleukin-6 is kind of confusing, to be quite honest. We know that it inhibits the production of TNF-alpha, which would then have an anti-inflammatory effect. If we know this increases inflammation, but this um, IL-6 then decreases it, that should mean it's anti-inflammatory. There have been some studies that show IL-6 as being pro-inflammatory. So this can be confusing. It tends to stimulate the production of other anti-inflammatory cytokines. So that would be a positive benefit. So in general, this one, whereas this one tends to definitely increase inflammation, this one could either increase or decrease inflammation. It's sort of a, a confusing substance in the sense that maybe 
um, it, its effect either to promote inflammation or decrease inflammation depends on what else is being um, released in your bloodstream. Another one, though, that we know can be a really important mediator of all this process that is released specifically in your skeletal muscles is this substance called, and you don't need to know this, but I'll put it here just so you know what the abbreviation is. It's called peroxisome proliferatory activated receptor gamma co-activator 1-alpha. You can see why we don't use the whole name for this. It's pretty long. So just PGC-1-alpha would be much easier to refer to this one. What this is, is it's an activator that regulates metabolic activity in the skeletal muscle. And what all that means, and this is where you want to, to concentrate, it's going to suppress inflammatory substances that are produced by muscle cells. And those ones that are cytokines made specifically in muscles are called myokines because of their muscle connection. This substance also seems to be um, associated with increasing or protection of muscle mass. So we know that as people age, they have a decrease in muscle mass, particularly if they're sedentary. But because this substance is produced by muscle cells with activity, then we know that this may be part of what causes you to maintain your muscle mass as you age if you're active. Because this substance is present in high amounts in trained skeletal muscle. So this means that the more of it that's around, the more of an anti-inflammatory effect you're going to have. So this we know didn't decreases inflammation. And it's possible this is a really important anti-inflammatory mediator in muscle cells, particularly if you exercise with chronic disease, this could be a really important mediator of that response. And in fact, it may even be related to stimulating IL-6 to be more anti-inflammatory than pro-inflammatory. So what does all this mean? Well, in order to understand all that, we have to go back and remember what happens in endothelial damage that's caused by inflammation of your blood vessels. So you have to remember how that plaque forms in the blood vessel wall. So what happens here, if you start at the top, is you have some sort of damage to the endothelial wall. And here it could actually be caused by um, hypertension, it could be caused by an increase in lipids that are sort of um, causing an imbalance in that level in your bloodstream. You have lipids that start to invade the blood vessel wall, and that's what you're seeing here, these lipids getting underneath the surface of the blood vessel wall because the endothelium is damaged. Now your immune system sort of sees this as, okay, there's an injury and I need to start the normal process of healing. So you get monocytes that migrate to the area, change into macrophages, and go through that break in the endothelial wall. Now when the macrophages get there, they start ingesting things because that's what they do. Macrophages are phagocytic. But here it's not bacteria they're ingesting, they're ingesting lipids. In fact, when they ingest lipids, they get big and bulky, called foam cells. That's what a macrophage containing lots of lipids is called. So you've got all these foam cells, macrophages with lipids inside. That ends up changing the composition of that vessel wall. And it also causes platelets to start adhering. When platelets adhere, you end up with this thrombus or clot forming. So lipids are accumulating. We've got fibroblasts that are starting to try to heal the area. Again, this should all sound very familiar because we talked about inflammation and healing being very closely related. Here though, 
this becomes a negative process of um, inflammation and healing because that inflammation and healing process is blocking some of that blood vessel wall because it's creating a bulge in that blood vessel wall from the accumulation of lipids underneath and this fibrous cap from collagen and fibroblast activity. If then you're getting platelets adhering and you get a thrombus forming, this is where you really get an increase in blockage. And if that breaks off and you get a piece of the thrombus traveling downstream to a smaller vessel later on, here's where you get that necrosis, which, lead, which is the result of a heart attack or a stroke or some other process then that is related to um, occluding a vessel. Now, as a normal part of your vascular function, you have a couple things happening. Normally, part of this healing and repair process involves endothelial progenitor cells. These are important for repair and formation of new blood vessel wall endothelial tissue. So this again, these are normal parts of vascular function. A normal part of helping your blood vessels to dilate is called the nitrous oxide system. This is released by one of those inner um, levels of the vascular wall called the intima of the artery. And when it's released, it causes vasodilation. So ideally, we would like to see an increase in the activity of EPCs and the nitrous oxide system in order to heal and um, get back to a normal vascular function. Well, guess what? It turns out that's exactly what exercise does. If you don't have adequately functioning endothelial cells that can respond to that increase in metabolic demand, they're going to do something called paradoxical vasoconstriction. If you've got plaque and those endothelial cells are damaged, they may do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. So they are supposed to vasodilate when you get that nitrous oxide being released because of an increase in metabolic demand. But when the endothelial cells are damaged, they may do the opposite. They may vasoconstrict rather than vasodilate, which is called endothelial dysfunction. The good thing is that with exercise, you get both a stimulation of those endothelial proliferative or progenitor cells and an enhancing of the nitrous oxide system. So by stimulating the endothelial progenital cells, you'll get a more normalized endothelial function because they will come to the area, repair and form new normal endothelial tissue. The only issue is this stimulation of the EPCs seems to only be temporary after a single bout of exercise. So that means that daily exercise is necessary to optimize this effect of stimulating those endothelial progenitor cells. The enhancing of the nitrous oxide system means that those dysfunctional arteries that tend to vasoconstrict rather than vasodilate will now have a greater vasodilation because exercise is going to enhance that process. You're also going to see with exercise an increase in the production of IL-6 and PCG1-alpha. Remember, IL-6 could either have been pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, but PGC1-alpha in particular was a really big anti-inflammatory mediator in muscles. So this together, by increasing both of those, they're going to decrease the negative effects of TNF-alpha and the rest of your inflammatory response. And we know that your inflammatory response decreases with exercise because we know that HSCRP decreases with exercise. But that's not the only part of this pathophysiology of disease that we see. It's not just changes in those inflammatory markers, 
we can see changes in lipid markers as well with exercise. And here's a big list, and I know it looks overwhelming, but I'm going to kind of try to put some of these together for you. Here's a big list of some lipid enzymes that can be altered by exercise, and, what, and I'm going to go through a little bit of what they do. So one of the enzymes that promotes the formation of HDL is called lecithin cholesterol acyltransferase, just abbreviated as LCAT. This promotes formation of HDL. So this is really important because HDL is your good cholesterol. And that means the more HDL you have around, the more you're going to get a movement of cholesterol, including the bad cholesterol, from your arteries back to your liver. And when you bring them back to the liver, the liver uses it to make bile acids. And bile acids are secreted from your body, which means you're actually getting rid of cholesterol the more HDL you have around. Now that's sort of a little bit controversial, but there is some research indicating that LCAT may be increased with exercise. This may be one of the reasons HDL seems to go up with increasing exercise. Now here's two other enzymes that rather than building cholesterol, they tend to break down cholesterol. So lipoprotein lipase, and this is one of the reasons why you know it breaks down cholesterol, they both are lipase, breaking down lipids, lipoprotein lipase and hepatic lipase. LPL breaks down fat on the surface of endothelial cells and macrophages. In fact, it seems like um, you get a decrease in what are called chylomicrons and VLDL with an increase in LPL. So lipoprotein lipase helps to lower triglycerides by breaking down chylomicrons and VLDL. Now, if you don't remember what those are, so you have more than just HDL and LDL as your um, major forms of cholesterol, but those tend to be the two we talk about the most when we talk about atherosclerosis and risk of heart disease. You also have one called intermediate density lipoprotein, very low density lipoprotein, and chylomicrons. And these other ones are sort of, particularly chylomicrons, are sort of transport mechanisms. So chylomicrons are a really big part of transporting triglycerides from your gut around to the liver and other cells. So if you end up um, breaking down chylomicrons and VLDL, that will in, in essence lower your triglycerides. And triglycerides are certainly associated with heart disease. Now, these, this um, increase in LPL also seems to be associated with increasing HDL, which again we know is your good cholesterol. So you can see here why having an increase in LPL activity would be positive. You're getting rid of triglycerides and potentially increasing your HDL. We do know pretty substantially exercise increases lipoprotein lipase activity. So this is why you get a benefit to your lipid profile with exercise. Now hepatic lipase is a little bit more um, sort of gray area. It may have both um, pro-atherosclerotic and anti atherosclerotic activity. So this could be either good or bad in terms of um, regulating cholesterol and that's because um, this enzyme actually converts a whole bunch of these forms to other ones. So it converts VLDL and IDL to LDL. So that means you get a greater amount of IDL while these end up going down. It also converts some of your various forms of HDL to another. So it converts HDL2 to HDL3, so your larger HDLs to the smaller size HDLs. So this, you know, might be good for risk or bad for risk, but some of the research that I've been reading sort of indicates that this is where lifestyle or behavior may specifically change what happens to hepatic lipase. 
So there's an article at the, on that second slide where I gave you my list of sources that found that even those people that had a bad risk profile, a bad genotype version of hepatic lipase, they had lowered risk of coronary artery disease if they were vigorously active. So this is where exercise might be the key to making hepatic lipase a positive in terms of risk as opposed to a negative in terms of risk. So we know LPL increases with exercise, but because hepatic lipase could increase or decrease risk, this is where exercise might sort of mitigate that difference between the two. These last two seem to be where glucose and lipids are related to each other, which is why people with diabetes have an increased risk of heart disease. So let's start with this enzyme called AMP-activated protein kinase, abbreviated AMP-K. What this enzyme does is it causes increased muscle uptake of glucose in addition to oxidation of fatty, fa excuse me, fatty acids in addition to decreasing cholesterol synthesis. So this is really important. This enzyme we're finding is probably huge. It turns out that you get an increase in AMPK with exercise. So this should make sense. With exercise, you get an uptake of glucose into the muscles and you begin to use fatty acids while at the same time decreasing cholesterol. So this may be the whole reason that exercise does what it does to your glucose metabolism and your fatty acid metabolism. In fact, um, this enzyme is actually the target for glucophage. So if you go back to the diabetes lecture and look at the um, oral medications used to treat type 2 diabetes, Glucophage is one of the medications that is used, and it stimulates this enzyme to uptake glucose. So it's sort of simulating exercise by taking that medication. So this is why exercise is really important for management of diabetes, because it's going to naturally increase amounts of this enzyme. So what we know about this, then, is that not only does it increase uptake of glucose in the muscles, cause you to use fatty acids but decrease cholesterol synthesis, it also tends to be associated with a decrease in HMG-CoA reductase, which is this next enzyme. This is the enzyme that helps you synthesize cholesterol in the liver. So if you increase this one, you decrease this next one. And HMG-CoA reductase is an important process in making cholesterol in the liver. We also know that it is more active when blood glucose, excuse me, it is more active when blood glucose is elevated. Again, this might be why people with diabetes have a greater risk of heart disease. Because when their blood glucose is elevated, they are going to have an increased synthesis of cholesterol in the liver. So whether you realized it or not, there is a very close relationship between glucose metabolism and lipid metabolism. Because when we are not using glucose for energy, we have the ability to use lipids for energy. So there has to be a link between those two systems. And here is where that comes in. So how can you change the lipids with exercise? Well, HDL is the most responsive to exercise. LDL is a little bit less responsive. And part of why LDL is, I'm sorry, HDL is the most responsive is probably because of that lipoprotein lipase enzyme activity. Now there is some evidence to show that hepatic lipase can be increased in activity with exercise, but we know that that one can be confusing because it seems to both increase and decrease risk. So that's why I put a question mark there. There is also a little bit of research showing that LCAT um, less, less than cholesterol acyl transphase activity may 
also be increased with exercise. But this one is certainly the most supported, an increase in lipoprotein lipase activity, which is part of what leads to an increase in HDL. Now, there is sort of some confusion with LDL and exercise in terms of responsiveness, and that's partly because there are so many different types of LDL. So if you actually go back to this slide and take a look at this picture, look at all these different forms of LDL. We've got various different kinds that actually have different size and composition. So this is what this means here. Smaller, denser LDL molecules decrease with endurance exercise. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. We want to de decrease the small, dense ones. But at the same time, you may get an increase in the larger LDL molecules. But, so that means you could have both an increase and a decrease in LDL, depending on which type of LDL molecule we're talking about. But, it also turns out that exercise can upregulate the LDL receptors in the liver, which means that regardless of the fact that you can get both an increase and a decrease in LDL, the harmful effects of that may be decreased overall, which is why this increase in HDL and sort of overall LDL effect is decreased with exercise. And part of this, again, is because we know that with that increase in AMPK, we get a decrease in HMG-CoA reductase, which is what decreases your lipid production. Whereas this actually can cause you to use more of those fatty acids in your metabolism. Now remember I said there's a pretty big connection between lipids and glucose. Here are some hormones. Now these aren't enzymes, these are specifically hormones. So remember I said that hormonal dysfunction can lead to problems with both insulin use and your lipid profile. So here's where that insulin use comes in. So these um, can also sometimes be called adipokines because many of them are either made in the fat tissue or adipocytes or they are made somewhere else and acted on at the site of your adipocytes. But many of these are related to both glucose and lipid metabolism, not just one or the other. One of these is called leptin and this is the hormone that tells you you're full called the satiety hormone. Now what we know is that in obesity those people tend to have a reduced sensitivity to satiety. In other words, their body is less able to detect when they should be full, when they should stop eating. So what happens here is you end up affecting the lipid metabolism and energy balance, and you have a decreased sensitivity to the insulin that's being secreted. Um, secreted. Now, it's possible that when this is secreted, that it also causes an increased stimulation of AMPK. And remember, this should make sense too, because if you, your body says, oh, I'm full by having a secretion of satiety hormone, that should also tell, okay, my muscles need to then uptake glucose and start using some of the glucose and fatty acids that I just ate. So that may be part of the connection as well between some of these different hormones and enzymes. Adiponectin also seems to activate that AMPK, which would cause you to uptake glucose and start to use fatty acids. For energy and that's probably where this relationship is it helps regulate glucose and fatty acid metabolism which means that the more of it that is around the more you are suppressing some of those changes that lead to obesity diabetes met, um, metabolic syndrome and atherosclerosis so the levels of adiponectin go up as body fat goes down and that's a good thing because it turns out the more of this that you have around, you tend to have less of tumor necrosis factor. It seems to decrease levels of tumor necrosis factor. So obese individuals tend to have less of this hormone, which means they have a greater risk of these diseases. 
which means they're going to have altered use of glucose and fatty acids. Another recently discovered hormone, well actually not so recent, but we're having a better understanding of its function more recently, is something called resistin. And it was named that way because initially when they found it, they realized that it seemed to cause insulin resistance, and hence they named it resistin. It also tends to have more than just an effect on glucose and insulin. It seems to affect the liver's ability to clear LDL. So not only do you get an increase in insulin resistant, but you end up with more LDL in the bloodstream. And we know that the more cholesterol you have in the bloodstream, the more inflammation and a decrease in vascular function that you have. It also seems to increase other pro-inflammatory cytokines. It's associated with an increase in tumor necrosis factor alpha, an increase in IL-6, and an increase in IL-1. So this is all, all around a bad hormone. What we also believe is that it may be increased the more body fat tissue that you have. And I put a question mark here because the research hasn't completely confirmed this, but a lot of it's sort of leaning in that direction, that resistin may be one of the hormones that sort of makes that connection between being obese or overweight and having an increased risk of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and therefore atherosclerosis. So this may be, again, all these um, hormones and enzymes and inflammatory markers, it may be how this complex system creates this constellation of risks that puts you um, in that potential road toward metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. So what is exercise going to do for you? Exercise encourages the uptake of glucose into the muscles. So that's going to decrease the levels of blood glucose. Exercise then also through that um, work of adiponectin and leptin is going to then increase your insulin sensitivity. And this we found happens with both single bouts of exercise and chronic persistent exercise, which is ideal, which is what we want. Part of the way this happens is as muscles begin to work during exercise, you get an increase in that um, AMPK enzyme. That AMPK enzyme is important in making sure you have enough ATP around for the metabolic demand. And it senses this difference between AMP and AMP and ATP. So when that enzyme increases, it tells you to uptake glucose into the muscles so that you can do the Krebs cycle and create more ATP. What this also does then is it decreases that hormone that produces lipids in the liver. So again, hopefully you can see how all these things at a molecular level decrease your risk when you exercise. Now, that last slide talking about lipid and glucose metabolism. Here is where you get that connection between glucose and fatty acid metabolism. If your exercise is enough to reduce body fat or at least maintain a lower level of body fat, that's where you're gonna have a big effect on the hormones, like leptin. You will have a better sensitivity to leptin. That was your satiety hormone, okay? Having a greater amount of that is going to make you realize when you're full and when you're not. A better sensitivity to that is going to then cause you to not overeat. You're also going to have an increase in adiponectin if you have lower body fat. That, if you recall from that previous slide, is what regulates glucose and fatty acid metabolism. In addition to decreasing that negative inflammatory substance called tumor necrosis factor alpha, you're also going to get a decrease in resistin. Resistin, when it's around, seems to promote insulin resistance. We also seem to find it in lower amounts when you have lower body fat. 
So not only will you have better reaction to insulin, but you're also going to have a decrease in those inflammatory cytokines and bad levels of LDL. There's also a couple things that I just want to mention in terms of blood pressure and coagulation. So we went through all these technical reasons of why exercise seems to affect inflammation, lipids, and glucose. In addition to that, we also have a general effect of exercise on blood pressure and coagulation. So here's a really important thing to remember about blood pressure. Blood pressure is a normal response to your fight or flight or stress reaction, which is also called sympathetic nerve activity. But what we also know is that moderate aerobic exercise releases nitrous oxide, and nitrous oxide in your blood vessels causes vasodilation. And vasodilation is what can decrease your blood pressure. So, in general, this leads to a reduction in sympathetic nerve activity and reduces norepinephrine. So over the long run, you're going to get a decrease in the vascular resistance and a vasodilation, which over the long run leads to a decrease in blood pressure. It is important to note, though, that in people who have high risk, you have to be really careful because during exercise, particularly vigorous high-intensity exercise, you're going to get an increase in blood pressure immediately during that process. But afterwards, you will get a lowered blood pressure. So here's where you may need to monitor individuals who already have an established chronic disease process. But over the long run, as you increase their level of exercise, with moderate aerobic exercise, you will end up with a decrease in blood pressure over the long term. Now we know that that low intensity, moderate intensity exercise also seems to decrease coagulability. And remember, this is part of what would be the risk of atherosclerosis, sclerosis, in part of that pathophysiology of coronary artery disease and stroke. What I want you to realize again here, and this you can see where I'm going with this um, process, is that high-intensity exercise may actually increase coagulability, particularly in those who already have chronic disease process. So their body is already pro-inflammatory, may already have an increased coagulation in the blood vessels. So here again, both blood pressure and coagulation could be an issue with high-intensity exercise in people who already have a disease process going on. But for those who are looking for prevention, there is a little bit less risk of that higher-intensity exercise causing issues. In general, in the long run, you will get a decrease in blood pressure and a decrease in coagulation during that process as a response to exercise. So moderation and persistence is probably the key. Here's kind of a summary, and this picture was on a previous slide, but again, I want you to realize that we've talked about a lot of things here, but in general, like I just said, you are going to get, after exercise, a decrease in blood pressure. You're going to get a better sensitivity to insulin, you're going to get an increase in HDL, and a um, sort of moderate decrease in LDL, but the more HDL you have, the better ability you have to clear LDL. You're also going to have a lessened amount of lipids in your bloodstream after a meal, and that's called postprandial lipemia. You have a better profile of postprandial lipemia with exercise. And in terms of fixing those dysfunctional blood vessels, you're going to have an increase in those endothelial progenitor cells. So here's a really good reason why you can convince somebody that exercise is super important to combating chronic disease. But that exercise ideally should be moderate exercise and it has to be persistent because many of these benefits 
may be short-term and or subacute. Subacute meaning you're not really going to see those benefits outwardly unless it is done over a long period of time. We know that high intensity exercise may not only increase your blood pressure and increase your coagulation, particularly in those who have chronic disease already, but it could temporarily increase inflammation. So the goal here is 40 to 80% of heart rate reserve if you're truly trying to decrease inflammation rather than increase it. So optimal exercise though should try to improve cardiorespiratory fitness because that's what's going to give you the best effect in decreasing chronic disease. And that optional textbook I mentioned really emphasizes this, that you have to not just have regular activity, but the ideal um, exercise and optimal goal is to improve your cardiorespiratory fitness. The problem is that people who are already deconditioned, who may be overweight or obese or have some other chronic disease, including diagnosed hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and particularly respiratory disease, something that makes them out of breath, they're going to have a really hard time maintaining an exercise regimen. They are going to need the most behavioral counseling, the most motivation and encouragement of anybody out there because they're going to be the ones who are going to be most at risk for injury, the most at risk for complications, and they're going to be the ones least able to maintain exercise in the long run, but they're the ones who need it probably the most. So that's your dilemma. The minimum frequency to improve the cardiorespiratory fitness is three non-consecutive days of exercise. So if you're going with the ACSM recommendations of 150 minutes a week or 75 minutes of vigorous activity a week, then that would mean that at a minimum, you need to have three days that aren't in a row. But that's not what's optimal to improve cardiorespiratory fitness. You need more frequent activity in order to improve cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, the best way to improve cardiorespiratory fitness means you need to sort of be aware that you're increasing the intensity and or duration as your fitness improves. What I wanna to bring to your attention here is that one of the typical ways that people in the public who aren't gonna go through a big um, fitness testing regimen, one of the best ways that they tend to regulate or, or determine their, um, that they're at the right um, intensity of exercise is to use heart rate and that predicted max heart rate that is what they might be working toward is not the best way to assess people who have chronic disease because it may be off by plus or minus 20 beats per minute because people with chronic disease don't necessarily have a normal reaction to their heart rate particularly if especially if they are taking cardio meds. So remember we talked about a whole bunch of different cardiac medications whose purpose is to decrease the heart rate. And so you're not gonna get a um, adequate or um, typical response of the heart to exercise in those people who are taking a medication to artificially lower their heart rate. So just be aware of that. The best measure is both heart rate and the um, rate of perceived exertion or Borg scale. And there are a couple different ones. You could use the one that goes from one to 10 or the one that goes from six to 20, the original version that corresponds to heart rate. Either way, my point here is that using heart rate alone is not gonna be ideal in people with chronic disease, particularly those who are taking cardiac medications. So just be aware of that. You do want to improve their cardiorespiratory fitness, but in order to make those measurements for their improvement, you need to use the right combination of things um, to make sure that they're progressing. So the last thing I wanna mention here is that in those people who particularly have respiratory disease, they're gonna be really, really resistant to exercise because they are going to feel like they're out of breath. They're gonna feel like, I can't maintain exercise, this is ridiculous, I can't even breathe. Um, people who have really severe COPD, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, for example, they can get winded just in the process of getting dressed 
and getting to the kitchen in the morning for breakfast. They may have to stop and rest after they get dressed. They may have to stop and rest after they get down the stairs to the kitchen, for example. So having them um, feel like they can actually exercise is probably out of the realm of possibility in their own mind. But what I want you to help them realize is that exercise really helps them use less of their breathing reserve. So this would reduce breathlessness in the long run. In fact, um, something that's called pulmonary rehabilitation has become a common recommendation for people with COPD. But like I said, it's a tough sell because they feel like they can't even do normal day-to-day -day activities. How could they possibly exercise? So what the benefit here would be is to help them realize that trying to exercise and, and keeping with it will increase their ability to be active in the future. And that's because they end up in the long run using less of their breathing reserve that reduces breathlessness. They also have an increase in their skeletal muscle use of um, efficient use of O2. So they use less O2 and produce less carbon dioxide. So they become more efficient in their use of oxygen, which means they will be using less of it in order to do that same amount of activity as previously. You also can, even though you don't really have any structural changes to the lungs as a result of exercise, it can help with the muscle strength of the diaphragm and intercostal muscles, which do assist with breathing. Um, but in general, the recommendation here is if you can convince people that pulmonary rehab can help them with their day-to-day -day function and improving that ability to do activities without breathlessness, this could really improve someone's quality of life who has COPD. In the beginning, they may feel like they can hardly walk on a treadmill. They may be able to walk for less than five minutes. But encouraging them to stick with it, they may find that 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes are actually possible the longer they stick with that increase in exercise. So this may be something, in addition, you probably are all familiar with cardiac rehab, but pulmonary rehab is also a really beneficial process to help people with chronic respiratory disease. So exercise helps in managing and preventing cardiovascular disease, diabetes and endocrine disease, and chronic respiratory disease. So hopefully this lecture gives you a little bit better idea of why exercise can be in many ways a magic bullet for both prevention and treatment for a ton of different chronic diseases. And I would be willing to bet that as we go through the next few decades, we will find that the reduction in inflammation that you get from exercise is also what tends to be important in treating other conditions like autoimmune disease, like cancer, because it decreases tumor necrosis factor. So we might have some um, research coming out in the very near future that shows us that exercise can help more than just cardiorespiratory disease and diabetes. So if you have any questions about any of this, please be sure to let me know.